beautiful people to another episode of the Black Crown Chronicles podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kenesha L. Rowe, and this is a place where we explore the intersection of professionalism, textured hair, and identity. Get ready for another exciting episode. Today, we have a remarkable guest joining us, my dear friend, uh, Sundiata Ramin, a loving father and advocate for embracing natural hair. Sundiata is a logistics and facilities manager at Grid Alternatives, which is a nonprofit solar installation organization located in Washington, D.C. He facilitates the Black Folks Holding Space, which is a biweekly forum that supports Black employees at Grid. Sundiata received his Bachelor of Fine Arts degree in graphic design from the School of Visual Arts in New York City, New York. And as a visual artist, Sundiata has developed an interest in African art, which has led him on a path of self-discovery and a life-changing trip to Egypt in 1992. Sundiata is currently writing a feature screenplay called Moors of Andalusia, which highlights the rule of African men in Spain for over 700 years. As a world traveler and researcher of the African experience, Sundiata believes that the best way to fight an oppressive culture is to embrace your own, which begins through knowledge of self. So Sundiata, how are you? Welcome to the show. How's everything going? Oh, I'm doing absolutely great, Dr. Rowe, my dear friend. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you so much for joining me. Listen, I'm excited to have this conversation with you because I feel like I have the privilege of knowing certain aspects of your life that a lot of folks, well, really that you choose to let a lot of folks know. That's number one. But you have just a wealth of knowledge that a lot of folks wouldn't even know um, because you only choose to allow them to get to know certain, uh, certain dynamics, certain aspects of you. I've heard bits and pieces about your journey as a father raising a daughter with natural hair. Your daughter has had locks and had natural hair her entire life. And that is a new phenomenon, I would say, um, particularly for the younger generation. And it really is inspiring. I know that that decision was very intentional. I'm wondering if you can tell me a little bit about your decision to allow the type of environment where your daughter can embrace her natural hair from the beginning? Absolutely. Um, the first thing I must say is that as a student in college, that's where the self, the really the path to self-discovery began. Um, as a student in my third year, I was taught by a professor, Dr. Rosalind Jeffries, and she was the one who really put me on the path to uh, learning more about the history going to museums and really uh, embracing the culture. At the same time, my children would be my would be my wife, uh, wife to be uh, Shondalon was being educated at the at City College by Dr. Leonard Jeffries, who was the husband of Dr. Rosalind Jeffries. How, and from those how, two. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And from those two, they developed a study group um, at City College. And I used to go up there weekly to these study groups. And what he would do is bring in professors from all different aspects of history, from the, from the Haitian uh, Revolution, uh, the Jamaican Maroons. We learned everything there and it was free. It was open to the community. So from there, that's when uh, we came, became one 
and decided to travel the world. And the first place we went was Egypt. Uh, we were we were exposed to Dr. Yosef Ben Yekinen. Dr. Ben was an Egyptologist, um, political science teacher. The man was a brilliant man. And we had the opportunity to go as a couple in 1992. And when we returned with that knowledge of self, with that uh, backdrop, we were ready to start a family. And when we decided to do that, we had to prepare um, ourselves mentally. Uh, and what we did was we developed a children's library, books that we wanted our children to have in before we even conceived them in our home, in before home. we even conceived the children. Wow. We had already had books like Little Bill, Rapunzel with, with black children in it, books written by and for about, about black people. Uh, at the same time, we were um, really supported by black uh, psychologists and psychiatrists who were writing books about what it is to be a black parent in America. One of the books we read was Developmental Psychology of the Black Child by Dr. Amos Wilson. Uh, he goes into um, recognizing the motor skills of children at an early age. So what we did, we approached this from a holistic perspective. The mm -hmm. hair was the crown, but we had to look at the, the, the images of black children with lips, uh, nose, uh, pigment, and, and uh, approach it from that face. And so once we had that down, we uh, then were able to teach them how to love oneself. And, and that comes from knowing oneself. And so that's basically where it began. And um, I'll go into it um, as you want to know more about that. That's amazing. So, you know, in 2023, um, I don't have children yet. Hope to have children soon. But what I'm hearing is that, and we already know this, right? Your environment kind of dictates the types of experiences that you have. And yes. you are able to control some of those choices. Some of them you're unable to control. But the ones that you could control, particularly just meeting your partner in that space, going yes. on this journey, being intentional about setting up an environment before you even conceive children yes. allowed you to create this very supportive environment for your daughter is what I'm hearing. Yes. And and what was so beautiful about it, uh, Dr. Rowe, was that uh, we had a community as, as, as teachers. It's one thing for them to teach us in the class, but Dr. Jeffrey's both Dr. Jeffries came to our home and we actually had a naming ceremony for my daughter. And we went through the traditional Akan way of naming a child and the importance of a name. And so we did our research. We, we sought help. We sought guidance from the elders the way you're supposed to, instead of reinventing the wheel, we had people around us who taught us. And so at 20, 23, 24 years old, we were already immersed in this culture. We had embraced it and our home reflected it. And one of the most important things I can mention to you was from Dr. Um, uh, Francis Cress Welsing, who said that you should find pictures of the darkest black people you can find and hang it in the most prominent place in your home. Mm. She said that because she said images of black people in places in their home reinforces the images of ourselves and where we come from, from as lightest as we are to as dark as we are. And that was true. So, of course, doll babies we had reflected what my daughter looked like. Right. The hair was natural on right. the dolls. And so that reinforcement is what we both, you know, were conscious of. And then we would ask her questions when she was four or five years old. Do you love your name? Do you know what your name means? Do you love your skin? Do you love your hair? And, and you could hear in her, yes, I do love it. I said, do you know you're different? Do you look different in other children? She said, yes, I do. And I said, well, how do you feel? She said, well... I'm fine. 
I'm fine. I love my name. My name is different. And I love, I said, yeah, great. I'm glad. And this is at five years old. Wow. Um, the other thing I will mention is um, that one of the photographs I shared with you over the phone was when a child is growing up, you will ask them, well, who do you like as a, you know, as an idol or, or as inspiration? And my daughter at five years old was enamored with Lauren Hill. She loved Lauren Hill with the locks. She yeah. loved Lauren Hill as a singer. And I really believe Lauren Hill was the one that inspired her to, to want to sing. Um, at three or four years old, she was she began to sing and she actually sang at her pre-kindergarten uh, graduation. So my daughter really was uh, internalized what we were trying to, to teach. And, and um, it's just an amazing journey to see her where she is now. And I think, you know, Lauren Hill, her emergence on the music scene was one of the first that we've not really seen at that level of success and right. crossing different spectrums of music. So I remember when Lauren Hill was there and I was like, oh, yes, dark, dark, yes. Sister, dark woman has locks. It wasn't like the, you know, the very groomed locks. So that image for me resonated um, when I was in middle school. So I just imagine like, had we not had images, affirmations, mm. positive messages, where would we be? And, you know, that really speaks to why we have to really seek authenticity because yes. if you don't, then you start to, or other people start to perpetuate something that's not real. Absolutely. doesn't have any connection to anything and, and doesn't have any meaning. Can I ask what your daughter's name means? Somalia means to nurture. Uh, she was named after the country Somalia. Uh, in the late 80s, there was a massacre of children in Somalia, and we wanted to remember those lives by uh, naming her that. Her entire name is Somalia Woyane Modili Ramin. <laughs> <laughs> Somalia. Somalia, of course, is from Northeast Africa. Woyane is in Tigre. Um, it, it means warrior. And then a Modili is named after her, her aunt. Her aunt's name is Monica, uh, Monica, and <clears throat> last name is Lee. And then Ramin, of course, um, her, the, the family name. But yes, the, the, they were, she really um, understood the importance of her name. She wore it with a, you know, with pride. But more importantly, she did see her hair as a crown. Uh, my daughter never complained about um, her hair. You know, you can tell some children say, well, I look funny. People make fun of me because the way my hair looks or my hair is not done. Every time it was time to get her hair done, she would prepare herself because she knew it was going to hurt. And I would take her to an African braider before, you know, uh, she grew locks and she would sit there. But after it was done, she would be so happy looking in the mirror and they put a cowrie shell on one of her, her, her twists. And um, she just was so, uh, you know, just so proud of who she was as a child. And that's only what a parent could, you know, you can only hope for in a society where images of all of black women in particular are so negative. And of course, we always reinstated, you know, reinforce the thing about color uh, because we, we explained to them that, you know, we are we have black people who are so dark that they literally have a blue cast around their face. And then you have some of us who are so light that you literally would not know they were black unless they told you. And I told them this is the, the, the broad spectrum of black people in this world. And it's important to know that we come from different places, but we're all one family. And um, so they didn't, uh, I don't think they, either of them dealt with colorism in their lives. My son or daughter really didn't deal with colorism, seeing someone, uh, you know, dark skin as being ugly, someone light skin favoring them. 
they didn't grow up with that with that mentality. Their mom was dark skinned, their father was brown skinned, and then their my my son is lighter than all of us. But you know, we they understood that yes, we do come in different hues. All of us is, aren't the same, but we're all one family. So I'm kind of curious because you know colorism is very much attached to the uh the this and I hate that certain textures are pitted against one another, but it yes. is very much attached to colorism, which is why I don't like to embrace using words like I have 4C hair or you have 3A hair. I just prefer to say the hair is wavy, the hair is coily, the hair is, you know, what it actually is besides putting a label on it because that has meaning in and of itself. Um, what were some of those specific messages that your daughter received around hair texture that allowed her to not even have that be an issue in her growing up and embracing her crown? I'm so glad you asked that question. One of the main questions um, that my daughter asked is, why did people call it dreadlocks? And I told her the, the mm. understanding I had was what, first of all, there was nothing dreadful about it to um, the kind of negative connotation to Rastafarianism and that teaching, I said, what you have to understand is this hairstyle goes back to your ancestors in Egypt. When we went to Egypt in 1992, we went to the uh, Cairo Museum and in one of the cases was a wig worn by one of the queens and it was Queen T. It was the mother of uh, King Tut. That wig was woolly. It had woolly uh, spiral hair. It had twists on the bottom of it. I will show you a photograph of it. It almost brought tears to my eyes. I could not believe that this wig was worn by a woman. And that wig then was transferred into court systems like the uh, pharaohs or the judges who, who presided over courts would wear wigs. That was then transferred to England, Europe and others who would wear the wigs you see now. That right. came from Egypt. I explained to her that there was nothing dreadful about it. It was a, a symbol, a badge of honor. And that you wearing your hair like this is nothing. There's no such thing as a good hair and bad hair. Uh -huh. Different textures of people um, based on where they are grown, where, based on the, the natural selection, that's what it is. And I said, it's important that you embrace it, learn how to manage it. And the beautiful part was she, at, at an early age, she, she learned how to uh, retwist her, her locks and, and do them herself. So she dyes them now. And I mean, she does her own hair most of the time. And I think, um, you know, that beginning part was uh, helping her to unlearn some of the terms that she was hearing on television and other places because it was yeah. such a negative connotation to brothers and sisters uh, from the Rastafarian community and very few who knew the understanding that this, this hairline, this hairstyle goes back thousands of years. And so, yes, it was popularized in Jamaica, but yes, we can embrace um, this and, and wear it as a crown. So, yeah, that's where it came from. I think the education was unlearning some of the, the negative stereotypes of wearing your hair in locks. And of course, seeing it in different styles, matted, um, some, you know, twists, what have you. But she she yeah. found her, her I think she found her space um, and has worn them in the same style for quite some time. So we always hear in, in any industry across any lifestyle that education is key. Education is free. Education really is the key to unlearning. Mm -hmm those negative messages that we have accepted or are Absolutely. exposed to about our hair. Cause we didn't design these messages. 
Um, we're just simply trying to navigate the world through these messages. So when your daughter was growing up, um, because obviously you're making these choices for her in creating this environment, you know, the schools that she goes to, how did you introduce different styles and different textures? I know that now she's a locked woman, but growing up, how did you create that diversity for her? Because I know, you know, some kids may say like, I want hair like such and such, their best friend, or they want this color. Knowing that black hair does have some limitations while still remaining healthy. How did you create that diversity for her to pick? Yes. What I did mention was, and I think I kind of flew over it, was that uh, her mom and I owned uh, several bookstores. We were very fortunate to own books in our library. We had over 5,000 books in our library. Wow. On our coffee table, we had images of Black women from Senegal, from Jamaica, from Nigeria. And these books literally showed images of hairstyles and cornrows and designs that my daughter was, I mean, mesmerized by. She would look at those wow. books for hours. So I think images of Essence Magazine and Jet Magazine those books like that helped to reinforce what we were trying to teach. So yes, it came from the books. It came from pictures on the wall of black women with uh, their children, showing women braiding each other's hair and, and the styles that they, you know, the kind of styles. We even taught her that um, during our enslavement that uh, our people were able to put designs in women's hair that literally led to freedom. They had mm -hmm. pathways where they shown where they were actually, we knew they did it with quilts, but I learned that they had actually did it in hairstyles as well. The brilliance of our people um, had to be taught at an early age for her to embrace that, um, and, and she did. So I would say the reinforcement in that education really came from books, it came from imagery, and then asking her, what do you think about that? How does that, you know, make you feel? Would you like your hair to be like that? And so it it really um, it it really was a process of educating through uh, books. Yeah, because the world it bombards us with so many messages and images, and you're trying to make sense of it within your household about what does beauty look like, what is attractive, who are you trying to please, how am I accepted, and when you have very strong internal messages that are positive yes. reaffirming i think that very much so impacts like your self-worth your self-worth and your self-love that you have um particularly as a woman um i'm just wondering as your daughter started to mature how did you still help her navigate some of those external messages? Because I'm sure as you, you know, I can remember for myself, those messages get louder. I now can make some of those choices that I couldn't make before when I was five, seven years old. How did you still try to uh, make sure that she was still surrounded by positive images and positive messages? Of, of course, um, when um, her mom and I uh, separated in 2001, um, I had joint custody. Of, of them uh, while we lived in New Jersey. And so they would stay with me for seven days and then with their mom. The most important thing um, I talked to, to Somalia about was um, her, her identity. Um, as a child, as she got older, 13, 14, this is when a lot of young girls um, begin to go through a, a level of challenges when it comes to identity. They're dealing with their adolescence, they're dealing with their period. And they're around other uh, younger women who are sometimes a little bit more advanced than they are when it deals with the sexualized um, nature of school and dealing with boys and all of that. And so when MySpace came about, Somalia went through that challenge of, um, I think, 
communicating with people on there and seeing people with um, 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 perms and different hairstyles and probably wishing she probably wanted to try it. But we had to re <laughs> we had to remind her who she was, where she came from, and that it's OK to be different. You don't have to fit in wherever you get in. You can be who you are and still be yourself. And then the challenge was in high school where she wanted to be on the, um, I guess she wanted to be on the cheerleading team and they didn't want anybody with locks on the team. Mm -hmm. And so she called me and she said, well, daddy, what should I do? I mean, I said, well, look, you can't compromise cutting your hair. You're not going to cut your hair. And they said, well, she can wear a wig. So she did compromise and decided to wear a wig. But even with that, she wasn't happy about it. Um, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's And this so is black folks. You know, these, one of the things about oh, white wow. supremacy and black inferiority is that, you know, uh, many of us, it doesn't matter primarily who it is that's the perpetrator. Ultimately, the victim is is black people. And so you will have black people who, who reflect, sustain um, this black inferiority, a complex that natural hair is nappy hair, is bad hair, and it is, you know, it's not presentable. So we, her mom had locks at that time. Uh, mom went up to the school, had that conversation with the principal. And then of course they compromised with her. The first year, I think she wore the wig. The next year, um, there were several people who, who had locks and then she was able to wear the locks um, the next year. But that's what it's about. So if it wasn't for her even saying, let me try and participate in this, activity where yes. I don't see myself even because mm -hmm. you're in a black school right a black environment that's right so she basically led the way there and broke that barrier broke that yeah. stereotype and now other people can now exactly and because she had parents life. who backed her she had parents who weren't compromising that um I told her that's a part of who you're crying that is who you are um yeah. you know and then as we as we educated her mom being dark-skinned thick um, lips, wide nose. Uh, it's important that she saw a woman who was uh, self-assured, love herself, have love for the creator, and most important, have love for her people. It, it really reminded, I think, Somalia of who she is and what she represents. And it's important that parents just stay, you know, supportive, be supportive, but you've got to remind them ultimately who they are, because a lot of times they do, they get, we all, you know, have challenges and we all have questions about who we are sometimes uh, in this society because it's such a dominant culture. But okay. she, I think she held fast. And as she, you know, entered uh, high school, she was very clear in where she was. And then, and later at Spelman, she, she just, she blossomed at Spelman because she was around a lot of sisters who were the hair and natural styles, Afros, you name it, that that's what she was around. So I think she really, that's why she, she, I think she really uh, flourished there. Um, under that circumstance, under those circumstances, really great to be around people who reflect you. Absolutely, absolutely. So I'm wondering because your approach as a father, um, I know, is very intentional, but also the choices that you make in affirming and reminding how you will not compromise certain values is also very intentional. From a parent perspective, what implications do you think your actions had for? other fathers that were around you, other families, other daughters? I can say that uh, my children's mother and I were very influential um, in the lives of many, many people. Um, we were what they call a power couple at 23, 24 years old. 
We were married. We had a business. Um, we were a family, um, very independent. You know, we didn't work for anyone. So for our, our ability to be self-sufficient, at the same time, be able to influence people to, one, encourage people to read. We really told uh, parents, you cannot teach what you don't know. If you do not know um, the, 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 the signs of genius in our children and how to, uh, you know, channel that energy and give them an opportunity, a platform, whether it's uh, music, whether it's dance, really investing in them and allowing them to, to blossom in that field. Because I'm a visual artist, her mom was an actress, so we had that, you know, artistic um, influence. But when it came to academia, we in, we really encourage parents to spend more time taking children to museums, to children's events, things that would help to spark their minds that other cultures and other people do. This is what we um, encourage, and so we would do field trips with parents. Uh, we would take people um, to um, African uh, festivals. And because we sold books at a lot of places, a lot of our family would come out to these festivals all across the country. And um, so that that was, um, you know, it was quite, it's, it's a blessing to be so young, but so impactful. Cause I was like 25, 26 years old and just had a, a real clear understanding of who I was, clear perception of who I was. And I know I was an example to even my best friend who was older than me, but he, he really embraced um, the African-American culture he really began to read more and he has a son and daughter. And it's just amazing to see like three or four of my, my closest friends who have children and how they raise their children in that perspective of teaching who they are and loving themselves. Um, but yeah, we, we were definitely impactful uh, in our communities um, that we lived in from DC to New Jersey. That's amazing. <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> if we can have that just everywhere. You know, that's what they say. It takes a village to yes. raise a child. And that's what you created for yourself. Whether or not you started from a village, you're creating this and you're 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 duplicating that and you're showing the strength in that. So that's just amazing. Um, Absolutely. As your daughter has matured into a young woman now, <laughs> what do you believe her embrace of natural hair will have in terms of influencing her sense of professionalism and identity? You talked a lot about, you know, she's very firm in understanding who she is, but as she enters into another realm now where there are still messages that she has to um, encounter and navigate about what does a professional look like? What does a young Black woman in filling the blank field look like? How do you think that your um, how do you think that your, uh, the path that you've set already will, will help her embrace and continue to embrace natural hair? I'll use one example. She, that, uh, experience that she, uh, was in really, I guess, confronted with, she was working, uh, right after she graduated from Spelman, she got a job with a nonprofit organization in Atlanta and her, uh, direct mark, I guess, manager was a white woman. Um, the white woman, um, I think, was very, uh, what's the word? She, she, she challenged Somalia in a lot of ways that Somalia wasn't used to. Uh, she would ask her about her hair. She asked her about her background at Spelman and why did she choose to go to Spelman? Questions that, you know, in a way that was condescending, you know, you know you're know you a brilliant girl. Why didn't you go to Emory? Or why didn't you go to, you know, in that way? And so Somalia never told me this until after she left the job. It, it, uh, event, what happened, was that eventually the lady uh, became more and more, um, I guess, condescending to the point it was a form of harassment. And Somalia 
actually broke down several times. She told her mom, broke down about the level of, um, I guess uh, of, it was, it was intimidation. It was in, in very little support when it came to her job. And I think she was working in the arts. She was working in the, um, the I think the arts of endowment or something. I think that's what she was under. But the woman, it was a, um, a remote job, but she said the, the way she spoke to her, the tone that she used, and it was quite, quite clear that it was a lot of the hostility was with black women. She had experiences with black women that seemed to be negative. And my daughter fit that, that mold, someone who was assertive, someone who was self-loving, knew who she was, and she wanted to challenge her. She wanted to question and see if you know who you say you are, or mm. if you are who you say you are. And I think my daughter at one point, yeah, because of that pressure and also that the fear of losing a job, the fear of not having that, you know, your income allowed her to compromise somewhat who she was. And she left the job and was able to um, actually get a grant for her, her, um, her, her band. Uh, she was able to get a grant, I think about $150,000 to travel throughout the country and also finance her, her band. And I think that's when she decided to tell me. And she said, Daddy, this woman really every day she has something like negative to say or asking questions in a way that was inappropriate. And mm. I just didn't know how to handle it. And I said, well, Somalia, I'm, I wish you had told me earlier because I would have told you how to handle it. I've been a hiring manager and I've worked in EID for a long time. Mm -hmm. I said, you should have allowed me to, to get to coach you on that one. But yeah. I did talk to her about it. And I told her, you cannot be job scared. You have to stand on principle. You cannot worry. If, if it comes down to money, we have you on that. But it, you have to stand on principle. If you know someone is uh, making you feel a certain way, you've got to let them know and check it immediately and and really redirect that energy to them. You cannot hold that burden. You cannot go home, you know, every night worrying about, you know, what someone says to you on the job. And I think she she got the point. And now she works for a black nonprofit organization in D.C. Um, remote. She's very happy. Um, of course, uh, we always encourage her working with black folks because for some reason it, it has been taught to us after integration, anything all black, something is wrong with it. You know, if there's all black people in the organization, something's wrong with it. If it's all black people trying to, in a white group or in this group, so, well, what, you know, why you don't have other people in it? She she understands the importance of working with one another and being around people who who understand, you know, who really do understand the struggles. And so uh, she's very happy where she is now. And of course, with her band, um, that has been an expression of her um, identity, her love for music. And music has certainly, um, Dr. Rowe, been a, uh, guiding force for my daughter. That has been uh, a healing force for her and a level of maturity as uh, into her sexuality as a woman um, and her her, her explore, exploration in love and, um, you know, heartache. So yeah, she has really evolved at the age of 27 now into a woman that I think thinks for herself, um, feels, and, and is able to express how she feels and even the vulnerable and, and uncomfortable conversations she has, she can she can have those with me now. So what's coming up for me is that foundation is so critical. Imagine if you had not created that foundation, because we don't know what we're going to go through in life, but imagine had she not had that foundation affirming these positive messages about who she is, where she comes from, what it means. And then now she's encountering this negative energy mm -hmm. 
in a place that very much is connected to like how you make a living, how you eat, how you feed yourself, how you <laughs> provide for yourself and others. Imagine had she not had that, the impact that it would have had on her. Because you think about it in life, we have all had one experience where it's made us turn around and do something different. Absolutely. So the fact that she was able to still experience that, but still persist um, because of the foundation that you set as a parent, because you understood the value, I think that that is just a profound example of parent parenting and yes. just knowing that in this world, you're going to encounter many things. And it's my role as a parent to set my daughter, set my children up for success because Absolutely. there will be negative messages. Um, Absolutely. Beauty is defined a certain way. And so how do I then give her the tools, the weapons to make it through for herself, you know, for, her, for her family? You know, it just goes on in generations. This is what we keep. This is what we keep moving Um to make sure that we have what we need to survive and thrive. I have to share with you that at the naming ceremony for Somalia, um, my son was about, I think it was about three. And the way they were running around, well, my son was running around the room and Somalia was looking at him. She just kept looking at him, smiling. And she was only about, I think she could have been no older than eight months. She was about eight months. And she just kept staring everywhere my son went. She just kept following and, and laughing and he's playing with her. And Dr. Jeffries looked at me and he said, you know, I hate to see the day when this world takes that joy from them. And I knew exactly what he was saying. He was saying that pure love, that pure joy as children that we have until we come into a world that says, well, you, you're pretty to be a dark skinned girl or, or, or your hair, you don't, you don't have good hair. Your hair is nappy. You need to get that hair cut. Something's wrong. That those things that can break down a, a person he was talking about that he was talking not only from white people but this world that can literally um uh, have children become a, a shadow of themselves and, yeah. I, and it hurt and and you know as a, a parent you want to shield your, your your children from that but the reality is they will be confronted with that and my daughter was confronted by it you know, at her job, she was confronted with it at that high school when it came to her hair and she's going to continue to be confronted with it. The question is, how does she handle it? How does she navigate it? And more importantly, does she compromise who she is in order to do what she needs to do? And that's that's where I think, you know, that parent, you know, the parenting comes in. The parental guidance has to be there forever. You know, we don't stop being parents regardless of their age. Um, even Absolutely. to this day, my mother is the same way with me. At 56, my mom still is my guide, still my counselor. Very true. Parenting, the day is never done. You are oh. always parenting. So uh, we're going to wrap up. Are there any closing remarks that you wanted to share with our listeners today? You've dropped lots <laughs> of gems <laughs> along the way, but um, just wanted to know if you wanted to end on any particular note. I felt like what you said was a perfect wrap up, but is there anything else that you wanted to share? Yeah, I, I think my motto is, uh, which I placed on Facebook and it's very simple, but very profound. And that is the best way to fight an oppressive culture is to embrace your own. And that comes from, through the knowledge of self. You cannot love what you don't know. In order to know who you are, you've got to read, you've got to study, and then you have to be around people who look, reflect, and sustain the thinking that you have. Those thoughts will take you through and allow you to be an example to others. And so I always say that, accept your own. 
That's it. To our listeners, if this episode has resonated with you, if it has encouraged you to celebrate your own natural beauty or of that of Black women and girls around you, we encourage you to subscribe, rate, and share this podcast with your loved ones, with colleagues, or with strangers. You never know how you can open that door to education. Um, Until next time, keep celebrating the beauty of Black hair in the name of authenticity. Thank you for tuning in to the Black Crown Chronicles.